0: Hello, Welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. This episode, I'm talking with Melvin Rogers. Melvin is the Associate Director of the Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. He's also Professor of Political Science at Brown University. Uh, His main interest, Contemporary Democratic Theory, History of American and African-American Political Thought. And he's author of many books, including the most recent, The Dark and Light of faith, race, democracy, and freedom, and African American political thought, out through Princeton. Uh, it's a fabulous book, and I really, really enjoyed uh, speaking with him in this conversation. As I say in the, in the in the conversation, I really enjoy his his tenor and his balance in tackling some of these uh, topics. He really has a good sense of uh, different sides of some of these um, uh, issues, and how he's able to kind of just kind of cut right through and see where, where the, the, the essence of many of these things are. So it's, uh, it was, it's just, the book is great, and he, he also lets this shine through in the conversation. We start by talking about what are the two visions or stories of democracy in America. He talks about the utility of rhetoric, why white supremacy is still a relevant term in present day. Um, we talk about the use of appeal, freedom, Jefferson on We the People, political loss, James Baldwin, race relations. And how we handle our past and move towards our future. Again, a very, very wonderful conversation. He's absolutely a delight. And it was really great to kind of wrestle and turn these ideas around with him. And uh, I really, really enjoy those kinds of conversations. And it really was uh, wonderful to kind of get his voice on here and to hear the perspective that he has. And with such a uh, a wonderful book that he has out. Uh, As always, you can... Find this conversation and all other conversations at Com. Also on YouTube, get over there, like, share, subscribe, uh, share with all your friends if you really believe in the the podcast. All that is much appreciated and all of it helps. And so now I bring you Melvin Rogers. I'm here with Melvin Rogers. Melvin, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to uh, speaking with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you, you are uh, somebody that has written a, a fantastic uh, new book. Uh, the book is called The Darkened Light of Faith, Race, Democracy, and Freedom in African-American Political Thoughts. This is through Princeton University Press. And uh, as I was just telling you, it's a fantastic book. I really, really enjoyed it. So just tell listeners um, uh, who you are uh, professionally, academically, and uh, what you're currently up to.
1: Great. Well, again, thanks for having me. So uh, I'm a, a professor of political science um, uh, at Brown University. I teach uh, political theory uh, here at Brown. Um, and my, my work sort of really uh, focuses on the history of American and African-American political thought. And when I say political thought, what I essentially mean, um, I essentially mean the sort of uh, ideas Uh, that sort of underwrite um, uh, um, the American polity um, and that fuel it. Um, Ideas that the nation sometimes is not committed to, um, (laughs) or it claims to be committed to, um, and ideas that seem to betray what the nation claims to be uh, um, uh, committed to. Mm. So I've been teaching at, at, at Brown for some years now. I um, uh, originally grew up in uh, New York City in the, in the Bronx mm. and then uh, went off to um, 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 Bowdoin College first and then transferred to Amherst College. Um, and then after Amherst spent a, a year working on my MPhil uh, masters in philosophy, uh, at, um, uh, Cambridge uh, and political thought and intellectual history. And then went on to, to Yale to study political science and political uh, theory. And I've moved around a bunch. Um, but I have, um, you know, I, 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 I find myself again and again, animated by the sort of question of, um, you know, uh, sort of how to understand the ways in which um, oppressed groups, but in particularly african Americans uh, have found themselves in uh, uh, in really sort of sort of dark moments in the United States where they 're grappling with oppression and domination, and yet they remain all the same committed mm. um, in various degrees to to, to um american polity and so that that prompted me to sort of wonder how are they thinking about this thing Mm. democracy such that they can make sense of their constant appeal to the nation across time and that that really is what um um um, motivated
0: this book Mm. well i think it's super important because i think a, a claim that sometimes gets made which i can certainly hear some traces of is well look I mean, this country wasn't founded with, with black folks in mind as being equal. I mean, that's in the constitution, all that stuff, or a declaration. But it's one of those things where it's like, that wasn't really the case. Um, at the time, that's not what was happening. And so how do we have this reckoning of well, how for, for black folks, as it like democracy wasn't made here in the country with this intention of, of me and, and other black folks in mind? And how does it happen now? How does it happen that now and, and, and over the course of history? Um, you know progressively if you will being as as it should included in that and other groups as well but specifically here for for you know african-americans and so i feel like the historical lens in which you're coming with in, in the book really shines through of saying like yeah here's here's how there's a kind of uh push pull a kind of wrestling here of what democracy means for for black folks and obviously you're you're uh, with all of your work and that that wonderful CV, you're well situated to uh, to tell us about it. So that's that's great. Um, well, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so you start out the book and you you say that you, you there's like these two visions or stories of some of these dark tragic conclusions for for American democracy, and then there's a romantic one of inevitable progress. Why are both not entirely true or rather they're incomplete or inadequate or insufficient? What are these kind of two visions uh, that would that we get of of democracy and progress
1: right well, that's a great question so um so 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 before taking up that question, let me sort of first say that this issue that i I just sort of mentioned earlier about you know how how are African-Americans thinking about democracy so as to make clear um, or intelligible their constant appeal to the nation? One of the things that I argue, and I should say that this book is really working at uh, a kind of uh, high level, right? So these are sort of, a, a sort of elite intellectuals and actors um, that constitute American uh, African-American political thought. And one of the things that you come to discover is, um that there are a set of ideas uh, at work in how they think about democracy, so there's this idea of the of the of the people which is uh, descriptive and aspirational, and perhaps we'll come back to this. Um, and then there are questions about well, how do you move the polity to embrace new visions of itself? Yeah. How do you move the polity to embrace a kind of racially just uh, uh, configuration of itself? And and there we see African American thinkers from the 1830s to the 1970s, roughly the span of the book, appealing to uh, rhetoric, uh, appealing to aesthetics, appealing to the emotions to sort of move. Their fellows along, and all of those things are part of a kind of robust story of of how to understand the sort of interior workings of uh, of democracy, um, how to understand its inner life. Now, I think that given our sort of sort of historical um, uh, or, or given the sort of problem of racial inequality and white supremacy uh, in the United States, um, we have particular ways in which we uh, deal with this issue or talk about this issue. So I think historical narration is absolutely important. Um, um, We can't get on without telling ourselves stories about who we are, both individually and collectively as a nation. Mm -hmm. But it isn't isn't merely the stories we tell about the past, in this case, the, the past of racial injustice, but the frameworks we use to help us understand the stories as well. What are those frameworks? I mean, in the framework, we can find possibilities. In the framework, we can find premature closures. And one of the things that I argue is that when we sort of narrate the story of of white supremacy, of slavery, uh, practices of racial domination, um, that sometimes we reach for a romantic story. And the romantic story um, basically says that, look, the best of America's commitments, our professed belief in like, freedom and equality um, these commitments have constantly beat back, have constantly pushed back white supremacy and discrimination. And the reason why uh, those uh, commitments of freedom and equality have beat that back is because that's truly who we are. And this kind of kind of romantic framework will emphasize the multiple waves of racial inclusion over time that have disrupted white supremacy. And the thought is is that the the true American creed, who we really are, is shining through. I think we also reach for a different kind of story. On the other side, there's a darker story that we reach for. And this is a story that says, look, um, the reason why we keep seeing the reconstitution of white supremacy, the reason why we find ourselves in our in our current moment grappling with you know police brutality um, is because that's really who the nation is. It's really expressive of the nation's commitment. Now, look, I see the allure uh, of both of these accounts, and the reason why I see the allure of both of these accounts is because whether it's the romantic framework or whether it's a tragic framework, they really respond to deep questions. Who are we? Um, you know, What are our proper quests? What are the false quests that we are on? But I think that the romantic story will often find itself describing the persistence of racial inequality and white supremacy as anomalous or foreign to our political moral structures. Uh, and it will do this in part because it wants to believe that the nation is not only beating back white supremacy, but it is purifying itself in the process. And I think that the the, the sort of the sort of tragic uh, story will constantly find itself denying our agency, denying that we can have a hand in reconstructing this political community that we have. And in in doing that, um, it, it it really will uh, uh, give the past too much. Too much, too, too much control over the over the present. So I think for those for those reasons, we need to find a way. And I think the tradition of African American thought uh, engages in this. It is very clear that white supremacy is central to the tradition of American political life, um, but it can assert that um, without uh, embracing the sort of pessimistic story. Um, or that tragic story it can believe the transformation is possibility without falling into the romantic story Um, so for all those reasons I think those two frameworks are important but they're not quite right and we need a a richer account Um, and I think the richer account is found in these thinkers that I'm that I'm laying out now that was a long answer but it but but in some ways it was important to sort of frame um, uh, some of what the project is up to
0: well, my question was going to be: Which is the right framework, well Which is the right framework is it? The romantic one? Is it the dark one? Does it just depend on 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 how we feel on a particular week or month, or or it's it? You're, you're saying neither of them are completely accurate, I guess. So here's here's a here's a a separate question here. This is a little bit more abstract, but it, it kind of illustrates, I think, the point I'm trying to make here, which is when it comes to history. There is, how do I say this? There is no one way of telling a story. You know, people say, well, there's just the facts of history. And the reality is that's not true entirely, right? There's maybe some very, very basic facts. A civil war happened, slavery Mm -hmm. happened, the Revolutionary War, whatever, right? These are things that happened. But how and who are the players and what happened and how did this end and begin and you know what you know these are all perspectives of sorts but you could see on either side that there's a slippery slope with this right of people denying certain things or denying certain experiences and i guess the question would be why do you think we've we've kind of got to these two kind of narratives more or less and as you describe some of the, the thinkers in your book, why do we miscategorize or misunderstand or not find a kind of alternative, maybe uh, integrative way of understanding not just uh, black history but also American history? Why, why do you find why, – why do you think it is that we find ourselves in this kind of um, – uh, I guess, not a whole, but a kind of almost a loop of sorts where we can't get out of it on, on one side or the other. Why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is um, I mean this is a very uh, rich and complicated uh, um, question, um, um, some of which exceeds the sort of boundaries of this book and, and point to another book that I'm thinking about.
0: Oh, there you go. There you
1: go. <laughs> but... But the thing that I would say is that historical narration is always a moral and political enterprise. And then you have to think to yourself, a moral and political enterprise in the service of what?
0: Or, or whom? Or whom? Mm-hmm.
1: Right. right. What are the the major commitments? Who do you think? are those that are worthy of respect and admiration. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example that is not an example that appears in in this book, but just to sort of illustrate the point. Mm -hmm. Um, If we take the Civil War and we come at the end of the Civil War and we're looking at the two generals Lee for the Confederacy grant for for the Union, is it correct to say that both are heroes? Now, before we, before you, you, your listeners offer up any answers in your mind, the question of heroism, Mm -hmm. the definition of what it means, but the question of heroism partly depends, right, if we're going to attach it to someone, Mm -hmm. partly depends on what you think, um, on what you sort of think is sort of worthy of admiration worthy of pursuit, the expression of what it means to live in a healthy society um, um, that we call a democratic society. On that account, if you think that the United States is defined or it's defined by its commitment to freedom and equality, that is defined by its efforts to expand and to deepen those, if that's your framework, then when you narrate this history, Lee can't be the hero.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Grant can only be the hero mm-hmm. because it is those, those wider commitments, right, of freedom and equality that contextualize and give articulation to how it is that we understand heroism. And if you wanted to insist that, no, Lee and Grant are heroes, um, given, let's say, the commitments that I hold to freedom and equality, I don't know now what to make of you. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't be sure But if you want to say, if you want to say that Lee and Grant are both heroes, then I can't be sure where you now stand on the background issue, that is to say, the permissibility of slavery mm-hmm. because now all of a sudden, if they're both heroes, it might be that you are not yet settled on the permissibility or impermissibility. Of slavery in the United States, but I'm quite settled, right? The figures in this book, from David Walker to James Baldwin, were quite settled about this, right? And so, and so, and so, uh, Lee can't on this account be uh, be the hero. So, historical narration is always a moral and political story. It's in the service of things. Mm-hmm. It's in the service sometimes of uh, uh, of people. Um, but the other thing I would say is that historical narration is about enabling us to grapple with the persistence, the persistent features of that history in our present time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And when you look at the romantic and the tragic stories, both of them get in the way of us grappling with the persistence of these things and attempting to offer affirmative responses to them. One will just sort of dismiss them as not being part of of the traditions of American life, and the other will say it's so constitutive there's nothing to do. Mm. Well, that's not going to be helpful for people who are still suffering under the weight mm. of racial inequality and the persistence in its various and complicated forms uh, of, of, of white supremacy. So we need r- new resources. Mm.
0: Yeah, I, I like the the framing that you're you're putting there because it is there is something that is working for. Uh, you know, for a particular purpose, or or even for a particular group, and I think the last point there is is, is something that I wrestle with a lot, which is kind of this both right. As is, is, is how how do we have all this? We have a lot of progress in a lot of ways, but we still it feels like we get tripped up by the same things from these kind of ripple effects or these echoes of of, of, you know, very dark chapters of our history with slavery and, and, you know, uh, Jim Crow South and things like that. I mean, those things don't just go away and they, they shouldn't, obviously we should not not remember them, but it's, it's, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a both hand like, yeah, there's progress, but I think sometimes people try to, if you will, forgive the theological reference wash away their sins. And it's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I right. mean, yes, we we've done a lot of great stuff as a, as a nation, um, on 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 you know the backs and lives of many many folks that have passed, but it there's still challenges, and I don't think that eradicates progress, but it certainly doesn't give it this kind of gloss or or shine of like well everything's fine now. And I think right. that's I think where a lot of the times people find the conversation about this both historically and at this presentism of, of sorts of, of like, well, you know, how do we, how do we continue to have a narrative that doesn't forget these things, but doesn't stay stuck in the past either and, and ignores the progress. So it's a, you know, it's an ever tricky, tricky thing to, to, to get through. And so I guess the, the, the one thing here that you, you start in the book, which is which was super interesting i i liked the I really liked this this um there's a chapter a couple of chapters on this utility of rhetoric right for for understanding uh discursive ethics and politics in the united states I, I i'll give you I'll give you some 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 runway here you know why did you focus on rhetoric and you can talk about i guess rhetoric generally but there is obviously some very pernicious types of rhetoric that we see from certain groups for, for certain groups that is used as a, a weapon for moving uh, large masses of, 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 of people in, again, in these kind of manipulative ways. So rhetoric can be great, but it can also be terribly destructive. So I guess just generally, how are you seeing the use of rhetoric um, for ethics and politics in the U.S., and, and then, I guess, more specifically for some of the thinkers in the book?
1: Right. No, I mean, that's, a, that's an important question. And the, the thing I would say is that, you know, um, um, uh, democracy is a wonderful ideal for, um, um, for thinking about managing uh, the relationships um, within a community uh, and it 's wonderful, in part because of the way in which it is tethered to expansive conceptions of freedom and deep ideas of equality. But just for that reason, democracy often creates space um, for a great many people uh, to speak in ways um, and to act in ways that that if generalized to the population, if it catches on, it calls into question, it challenges the very conditions that democracy has created in the first place. So in some sense, to engage in a democratic project uh, is a risky risky endeavor, because you're constantly depending on your fellows to say yes or no. And it is in this context where I think rhetoric emerges as quite central, and especially was central for African-American thinkers, who um, uh, uh, in the 19th century um, are really under the thumb um, of white supremacy, the foot of white supremacy, right? So they're not power holders, right? Um, they don't, they don't, they don't wield power and they don't hold the levers of power, right? And so, how now are you going to move uh, move your fellows? And and and, and two things, um, uh, two things emerge that are related to this idea of rhetoric. And the first idea is that rhetoric is a mode of, it's a, it's a sort of practice. Um, um, it has classical Greek and Roman re- roots, but it's a practice that attempts to persuade your fellow, literally to move your fellows um, to, to, right, from one side to another, right to move them towards you, not away from you. And in the moment, in that moment, Um, In rhetoric's aspiration to move one's fellows from one side to another, part of what you're doing is honoring their judgment. Um, Because you're essentially saying that you can take what I have laid out, you can take it in, you can chew on it, you can think about it, you can digest it, and at the end, when you say that you're persuaded, it is because you have decided to live your life in the light of it. The first thing I would say about this is that this is fundamentally important. If you think that the nature, as these, as these African-American thinkers thought, if you think that the nature of white supremacy is not merely about the existing laws on the books, but it's about the beliefs and the ideas that people hold about Black people. So it matters that they come to see those ideas as mistaken um, uh, as immoral, as unethical, um, and it matters that they come to sort of decide to live differently. I think the other component to rhetoric is that the rhetorician will always need to enter the discursive field, the symbolic field, the cultural field of those to whom they are appealing, to whom they're speaking. And so you see this quite clearly in African-American political thought in various ways as there's sort of appeals to the Declaration or there's appeals to the founders. Um, uh, All of this is an attempt to sort of enter the discursive field, the cultural field of America's ethical and political life um, with the aim of beginning with ideas that your fellows are familiar with in order to move them, move them to more expanded ideas that are not um, uh that seem not to be uh that seem not to be in view in view for them. So for all these reasons, rhetoric is quite an it, quite important, but of course it's a quite risky affair, because your fellows can say that they're unpersuaded. Right? Or other ideas in circulation um might be more successful than your own. Right? And if, and and the important point here that African Americans wanted to emphasize here, um And their deployment of rhetoric um, is that that there's a a sort of fundamental vulnerability that you can't escape in democratic life. Now, you can put up illusions, right, that you have escaped it. And those illusions can be, well, at least I'm not suffering like those people. Um, But that may only obscure the fact that you, too, are vulnerable and dependent in just this way on your fellows. Um and that and, and that for you know um for someone like you know David Walker, the nineteenth century abolitionist, the thinker that I really begin with, um um uh, uh, rhetoric uh, you know rhetorical engagements mattered um for just these reasons. Um, um and you see this again, let's say, in someone like W W B Du Bois, right, who in the Souls of Black Folk 1903, um uh is attempting to both honor his uh readers, his audience, uh, and and trying to sort of move them to a position of moral and political rectitude, um, but to do so within the symbols and the cultural horizon that they're familiar with.
0: I have a, a question here. I do want to come to some of the thinkers uh, that you discuss, because I think they're some I knew most of them, but there was a few I didn't know or or some I hadn't uh, read enough about. Walker was one of them. Um, but. I have this question that you might be able to help me answer. When I when I don't know enough, um, or as much as I should, about all of the speeches or all of the the ways in which Dr. King used rhetoric, I know some of the the, the big speeches and some of the lesser known ones, but I, I'm not I don't know a whole robust kind of a catalog of what he what he spoke on. So I could be in error here, but. One of the things that I hear, so maybe with him, uh, maybe with someone like President Obama who used rhetoric obviously very well, um, why do you feel that there is pushback on using the term white supremacy now in 2023? Mm -hmm. I hear this a lot. I hear this a lot from a lot of different folks, uh, a lot of white folks. Um, a lot of you know people, center right or on the right, were saying, "Look, you know, white supremacy is is Klansmen and people in hoods. We, we don't do that anymore. We don't. Do, that's not white supremacy. Like you know, it's not. We yeah, a black president, black vice president, something I in the Supreme Court. All these big systems of power. Why are we still using it? Maybe we can call it something else. Why are we still using this? And I wonder. I'm not sure if, if Dr. King used that as much. I, I I rarely heard Obama use the 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 terms white supremacy and speeches and, and talks and stuff like that so some people have used it some people haven't in this I'm, I'm i'm asking in this part of the question here because of rhetoric people use this term and they will use it in a particular way today um and i'm curious of what, what do you what do you say to people that say that of saying listen we've got to retire this word why are we still using this and, and you know, I mean, I think I have some answers, but I mean, you're a <laughs> you're better place than I am to to answer this. So why do you think this is important to use to talk about some of these things? And and how is rhetoric helpful or, or hurtful here in, in discussing this currently? So it's a little bit of a kind of current question, but I want to just ask it within context of what you're saying. Right. Um,
1: well, you know, I think people often, you know, uh, don't want to uh, use uh, the term of white supremacy because um, they sort of uh, freeze in time the object to which white supremacy points so uh, when they think or you know it's the kkk it's uh, these folks in white hoods they're freezing a moment in time and using that as a means to define the term. So where the KKK are no longer dominant and things like that Mm -hmm. things adjacent to it, related to it, and therefore the word seems inappropriate as an attribution uh, or description of where we are today. But if we just sort of back up and we think about white supremacy as as simply um, uh, valuing white lives over non-white lives, in our case, particularly we're talking about black lives, it seems to me that, that, that the term is quite appropriate. The valuing of white lives over non-white lives, in this case, uh, black Americans, and using that um, a high evaluation as a basis for making political, ethical, and economic decisions affecting the life chances of white and black Americans. It seems to me that the term is perfectly appropriate. Mm. Um, um, uh, and I think... Um part of what we need to engage in is a kind of intellectual and historical agility. Right? But if, for example, you're working with this sort of romantic vision of America of American <laughs> progress, um and you sort of freeze in place this description of the, the sort of objects of of white supremacy. Um, you freeze them historically in time, then the term would not make sense,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Um, but we have to be we have to be more agile, right? And the mark, um, I think, what the book tries to suggest is that the mark of a healthy democratic society is really not measured. Uh, given our history, is actually not measured by our ability to wipe out white supremacy, because uh, in some sense the book ends on the note that um, this seems this is part of our it's part of who we are. Um, but the hallmark of of a healthy democratic society is 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 the skill with which we're constantly responding to um, the transformation, the reassertion of white supremacy in different forms but you can't get there you can't get there if if you're holding on to this romantic view about what progress is and you won't even take it up if you're settled on the tragic view
0: yeah i mean i would i would agree i think that you know especially in the united states and even in other countries you know england things like that it, it, people become it's just wrapped up with like you know this unhealthy nationalism i think of mm. you can't say anything negative about your country because right, as right. soon as you do, you're un-American and all that, which I think is a is a very, again, that's a dangerous thing to do. You have to acknowledge and work with and work, you know, to to reform and transform those things, uh, unless you understand those aspects. And I mean, goodness, I mean, this country is not perfect uh, in any way. Um, I think you know the country is is great in many ways and in other ways it's not i mean i think that's true for a lot of countries and but people have a hard time with holding two thoughts in their head uh, <laughs> two thoughts in their head at the same time and i think that that's uh, i think it comes a little bit from that is that people have resistance on that right um yeah. how how did uh, so, so tell us about walker and tell us how the role of rhetoric was used and and this kind of uh, notion of appeal for this kind of political power—very I mean, wonderful things that you had in the book about that. So, to talk a little bit about that.
1: Right. So I, um, so the first uh, the first two chapters of the book really uh, uh, center this nineteenth-century abolitionist, David Walker. Uh, who wrote an extraordinary pamphlet uh, in 1829, uh, the appeal to the colored citizens of the world, but in particular and very expressly to those of the United States. So David Walker had no problem in his mind talking both about colored citizens of the world and um, those specifically in the United States. And the, the thing that you sort of immediately encounter when you read the, the title of the pamphlet um, is, is the invocation of citizen at a time where rights that were extended to black men in particular were being rescinded. So, you know, rescinded in New Jersey at the beginning of, of the nineteenth century, uh, and, and sort of property rights um regulating voting were put in place, let's say, in some in some place like in, in in some place like New York. Um and so David Walker uh writes this document and he's sort of calling black Americans uh citizen and citizens, and it raises the question of how is he understanding citizenship? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you immediately come uh, to, to 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 discover, and this is at a time where citizenship laws are still in sort of flux, so yeah. it's not we are not at the Dred Scott moment mm-hmm. um, uh, of 1857, but but citizenship laws are still uh, are still in flux. And what David Walker is trying to do is to go to the heart of citizenship, independent of e of any legal or constitutional recognition, and the heart of citizenship. Is the ability of ordinary, everyday individuals to render judgments, judgments about the conditions in which they find themselves, um, how those convi- con- sort of uh, conditions are affecting their life chances, and to render a judgment about what to do in sort of in response to that. So when David Walker appeals to uh, the colored citizens of the world. And when he appeals, particularly to African Americans, he is essentially recognizing them as an authority that can um, uh, uh, sort of respond to the condition in which they find themselves. So the appeal, and it was a sort of popular, the idea of the appeal this, this term, appeal, it's not, um, uh, uh, it's not merely a term of art. It was quite popular in what we might call the kind of petitionary genre uh, of, 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 the, of, of the period. The Declaration of Independence of 1776 is an appeal. Um, so it was quite popular. And what the appeal uh, was really trying to signify is that there is an issue requiring redress and there's an authority out there that can respond to it. And in Walker's case, he wanted to say that black people find themselves in this situation, but black people have power to respond to it, and that their citizenship, independent of legal or constitutional recognition, is bound up in that capacity to to, to judge. Right, and so the appeal, you know, is is a way of sort of authorizing uh, a way of authorizing. Uh, those with whom you, you you sort of share the community. Uh, and in that authorization, um, uh, Walker is suggesting um, uh, in that authorization uh, lies freedom. In that authorization lies uh, the equal standard of black people. But they got to claim it. They got to respond to it.
0: So is this a... Is this a way in which he's trying to say this uh, this, this notion of citizenship? So uh, a footnote here. We talk still today about who's a citizen and who isn't mm-hmm. a citizen. And many people have these uh, archaic ways of thinking about that. But is this idea of citizenship for him this uh, kind of an American notion, right? In the United States... And this is how we're thinking about citizenship in terms of, you know, authorizing power of another, the use of judgment that maybe other countries think of citizenship differently. But in the United States, this is how it is. Or is it more globalized or was that just not his project? He was really thinking about it in an American context of what citizenship means here. Or does it it export, uh, if you will, kind of what we view of the idea of citizenship more generally?
1: Um, so I, I would say two things. So The first thing I would say is that you know, appeal to the colored citizens of the world, and then he tells you where he wants to put the sight of his, uh, you know, where he's going to focus. Right? He says, yeah. but in particular, mm-hmm. right? Um, so he's going to he's going to focus on um, uh, black people in the United States. The second thing I would say, however, is that, m- but there's no reason to think. That the way he's thinking about about the appeal, uh, and the way he's thinking about judgment as the basis of citizenship, there's no reason to think that this is just an American thing. Why? Because to the extent that you're a human being and have the capacity to judge, you also have the power of citizenship. Mm. Because because if 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 if, if citizenship. Is a way of denoting one's relationship to something, namely a polity, a nation, a city Mm -hmm. that exercises power over you, then the capacity to judge, which is resident in us all, Walker wanted to say, um, then authorizes you to render judgments about. Uh, 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 about those entities that are exercising power over you, um, and and of course, there's a much historic, there's a sort of longer historical story we can tell, um, uh, 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 going back to the 17th century. That would take us to uh, um, that would take us to uh, England. That would take us to Germany. That would take us to France. Um, um, as all of these uh, uh, different uh, um, uh, nations were thinking about um, the relationship of communities to uh, older forms of political power that did not rely on the judgments of those that would be subjected to those powers. So we mean monarchy, we mean theocracy, Mm -hmm. uh, we mean aristocracy. So Walker, in sort of deploying the language of appeal, Um, is, again, standing within the discursive and cultural field of American life, but indeed he's standing within the discursive and cultural field of the West. And he's standing within that field and deploying a concept that helps sort of illuminate what, um, uh, to put in quotes, the sort of Western political tradition Mm -hmm. takes to be the hallmark uh, of citizenship, which is, the, which is the ability of ordinary people to render judgments about their lives. Now, now we can't sort of make this claim... Um, going all the way back to the Greeks, we can't. Um, uh, there's a sort of modern idea mm-hmm. about ordinary people and their capacities for judgment. So this is a sort of modern idea, um, um, but it's a modern idea um, that comes through a whole series of debates that's taken place in uh, in, in England and in Germany and in uh, and in France, and of course in the United States.
0: Mm. So real quick here. Uh, he has ideas about freedom, right? And he has a certain utility of of freedom. Uh, he uses religious themes. Uh, he talks about you know freeing oneself from the notion of slavery towards human flourishing, resisting domination. Uh, all of these things, making judgments. How did he understand freedom, particularly, and and why why do you feel his voice on this is is important? Right.
1: So. So throughout the entire book, all of the thinkers um, see the danger to freedom as emanating from individuals, communities, and institutions that, that can exercise arbitrary power over you. Arbitrary power over you without any recourse uh, to the law or to political institutions. But you can't retreat anywhere. And in that kind of situation, you find yourself uh, at the mercy of those institutions, those, insti- those individuals, and you find yourself dominated, and thus you find yourself unfree. So to be free for, for David Walker is to no longer fear that arbitrary power will be exercised over you without any means, without any recourse um, um, uh, to the community to which you belong. So th- th- that's sort of important. Mm. I think the second thing, um, that, that, that matters here, especially for, for Walker, he's a Methodist. Um, um, and he's a, he's a religious thinker. Um, he wants to say that God, he says it in the appeal, uh, God implanted in all of us, the spirit of freedom. And he wants to say that freedom is constitutive of what it means to be a human being. And so for him, the question is, if you take yourself to be a human being, and you take yourself to honor um, um, uh, uh, God's law, then the question becomes, what are you going to do in the face of those that are trying to deny you um, this God-given feature of who you are? That you're free. So I, you know, so I think that 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 the story that Walker uh, tells about freedom is partly, um, uh, uh, he partly deploys it to motivate and galvanize uh, his black counterparts, and he also tells it because he, he wants to say that if you think. Now, Walker's telling a religious story, but maybe you don't tell a religious story. Later figures don't tell a religious story. But if you think all the same, that freedom is constitutive of what it means to be a human being, then freedom makes a demand on you by virtue of your humanity in conditions, under conditions when it is denied to you. And the question is, what are you going to do? Are you just going to endure? Or are you going to resist? And, and Walker thought that resistance is the necessary consequence or entailment under conditions of domination, under conditions of slavery.
0: How do we see this kind of pop up um, or how much interaction is there with some of the, the, the later thinkers about freedom? You said it was mentioned throughout the book. Where is there a kind of uh, convergence or divergence on this, this, this theme of freedom for some of the other thinkers?
1: Right. So so throughout the book, right, all of the figures um, are grappling with the problem of uh, domination. Uh-huh. But um, uh, God uh, figures um, um, uh, um, less frequently uh, among a number of the figures. So Douglas, God doesn't figure uh, uh, too prominently. In um, Du Bois, Ida B. Wells, Um, Before him, Uh, God, uh, right in before him, uh, God doesn't figure uh, uh, um, uh, prominently. But in some ways, in some ways, this is not surprising, um, given uh, what Walker is doing in the 1820s. Because God enters the picture as part of uh, Walker telling you a story about what it means to be a human being. And, and God has essentially given life to humanity and implanted in, uh, in us this spirit and desire for freedom. And then we have to do the rest. Mm. Um, and so later thinkers spend a good deal of time on what it means for us to do the rest. Which is not to throw out the story of God. It is instead to put it in its proper place and to sort of see um, uh, um, um, the, the possible transformation of, uh, of the United States um, and the possible transformation of the United States into a racially just society as dependent on the choices that we make, right? the actions that we embark upon in resisting
0: uh, um, uh, domination and discrimination and the like. So I guess I want to ask about Jefferson here. Uh, Mm. So you talk about that there's these uh, two forms of the people and you talk about, you know, who is the we and we the people and how that's a political claim. Uh, You talk about this being aspirational and, um, you know, what what is it about this imagined community or or this democratic wish? Um, And then we can bring in some of that stuff with Jefferson. But just that phrase, we the people, which we, you know, obviously know and, you know very well what are you, what are you trying to kind of illuminate there about this being political and what that democratic wish or imagined community looks like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Well, so 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 remember early on at the very beginning of our conversation, I uh, I said that that um, as uh, black thinkers are um, uh, thinking about um, democracy that one of the elements that helps um them manage their understanding uh, of the kind of situation that they they found themselves in and the possibilities uh is bound up in this idea of the people um and what you quickly come to discover uh, uh, Jefferson uh Thomas Jefferson himself was a defender a defender of this you quickly come to discover that the that the people is working at um uh is working on two levels the, the sort of first level is a descriptive account, which is basically, well, who are those that are identified in the Constitution with rights and privileges? It's just a descriptive account of the people. It is describing those that have standing based on the Constitution. Mm-hmm. But there seems to be a, a second way in which someone like Jefferson, um, a great many African Americans, and not just simply them, but beyond them, um, there's a second way in which the people is being used, and this is the sense in which what is referred to is a configuration of the people that's not yet in existence. Hmm. Um, this use of the people is about a set of habits and sensibilities that have not yet fully taken hold of uh, of the community, and so this description of the of the people is a people not yet it is an aspirational view of the people it's about how we um uh, how we uh, might be if we under if we if we undertaken uh, a set of values that we don't currently seem to be committed to because if we undertake those values it might reconstitute us in radical uh, in radical ways um and jefferson uh held on to these two thomas jefferson held on to these two descriptions of the people because he thought That it was always that he wasn't alone, but that he thought that it was always the second one that helped legitimize the first. Mm. Or to put it more concretely, let's just take electoral politics. What keeps you in the game when you lose? Or what keeps you in the game when you lose, basic electoral politics, is that you don't think your loss is a permanent one. Mm -hmm. You think Mm -hmm. you will get a chance to come back. Articulate your claims, potentially win the day and reconstitute Mm -hmm. some portion of the society to which you belong, whether the reconstituting is in the form of uh, you get a new mayor. Uh, in office, right? That will usher in a vision that's sort of consistent with your own and that of your community, right? Uh a piece of legislation is 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 passed, right? That lost the first go around and it's passed. And and now that it's realized, resources are now being sent to communities that otherwise wouldn't have those resources, enabling them um, uh, 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 to, to, to sort of see themselves and to realize things in radically different ways that wouldn't be the case uh, had they not received those resources. So, so this idea of the descriptive and the aspirational uh, idea of the people are central um, to what makes democracy legitimate. And by that, we mean what makes democracy worthy of respect and obedience. Yeah. It is the engine. Of uh, of uh, political and ethical transformation.
0: Yeah, right. I, I did talk about this with uh, Julia Hooker. She talks about this idea that with democracy is this idea embedded in of loss. You're going to lose. Someone's going to lose. <laughs> and and but the but the point of that is you get a chance to to to, to do it again. And maybe you won't lose. And you you know. So it's, it's very there's a, there's a nice overlap here on this.
1: And on, on Juliet's book, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I just want to sort of uh, sort of stay with this moment, because I think this is absolutely right. What she, what she is concerned with in that book, right? Mm-hmm. is when, um, uh, when one group is saddled um, with loss, mm-hmm. when one group is made to bear the weight of loss um, in a democratic society that is itself uh, unequal and unfair, and that there is no way to um, uh, uh, sort of compensate for this. And in that kind of, in, in that kind of, uh, in that kind of analysis, it, it points to a deformed vision of democracy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So loss is inevitable in democracy, yeah. and vulnerability is inescapable. The problem is always when one part of our society yeah. is settled with that. And when one part is saddled with it, it it gives the other part the impression that that vulnerability and democratic politics don't go together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When in fact they're inescapable. Mm-hmm. You're, you're just right. There's just right. You're just deluded about mm-hmm. uh, about this because you see that group over there suffering more uh, more than you. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, that's good. that's a very good point. You have this really nice question in the book. Uh, I think I have this verbatim. The question is, how must we understand ourselves such that we can make and remake American society in response to its changing circumstances? Fantastic question. It's a great question. What's the answer? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so one of the
1: things that I think um, uh, you probably notice about the book um, is that um, it is, uh, and I want to say this to your audience, it's, it's sort of high philosophy. I want to be. I just want to sort of say this. I think that whether it's David Walker or Ida B. Wells or Anna Julia Cooper or James Baldwin, the figures that I cover, that they have very rich and complicated ideas. Yes. About the kinds of creatures we must be in order to enact democratic life. Certainly. And that when you sort of focus on them and focus on what they what they have to say, at bottom they see human beings as works of art.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. That at bottom, they see human beings as um, these ethically and politically flexible creatures. Mm. And it is this sort of description of human nature coupled with a political system and a political way of organizing our lives called democracy with its preoccupation with Uh, openness and equality and freedom that fit very nicely together, right? Um, And so the answer here, I think, is the answer that these figures give, Mm. that we must see ourselves as the kinds of creatures that most certainly um, are shaped by um, the mistakes we make, um, the problems of the past but that we're not wholly captured or defined by those things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we're most certainly not settled Mm -hmm. and fixed by virtue of those things. Mm. James Baldwin in Notes of a Native Son, um, 1955, I think I got that right. um, There's this moment where he sort of outlines the horror of um, the United States treatment of Black people. Mm. Um, And he says, Basically, these things don't go away. Just, and he said, Look, there's just sort of the, the reality of our condition. Mm. And this is what James Baldwin says just a reality. And at that moment, when he says it's just a reality, you might be inclined to say, Well, what, what are we doing then? <laughs> and then he says, But we can't simply be complacent about it all because we're humans. Mm-hmm. And of course, in that in that moment, we can't simply be complacent about it because we're humans. That's where resistance lives, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's where the life and the energy um, of a democratic struggle uh, lives.
0: Yeah, I, I, it's a good segue. I, I had two final questions for you. Uh, one of them was about Baldwin, and, and, and just briefly, you can talk about his critical responsiveness. But really, in the book, you say that he, he makes this claim that black. And white Americans have a blood relationship and that acknowledgement shatters illusions and, and how that's necessary. Uh, I haven't read him in a while, so it was I was I was reminded of how you know powerful he is. Um what what do you mean by what does he mean by this this kind of relationship and this responsiveness? What what is what is this about here?
1: Well, the the blood relate the sort of blood relationship is partly an illusion to um um uh, um yet another darker side to slavery. Mm. Uh, the, um, um, the, the taking advantage, the raping of black women, um, um, the fathering of, uh, of children through, um, uh, uh, through force and through violence. So it's an allusion to that. Um, but Baldwin also means it uh, in the sense um, that the struggle between white and black Americans uh, and the blood that has been spilt uh, through that struggle, uh, has seeded the ground right, of American life. Mm. We are their fruits. Right? And, uh, um, and Baldwin puts it in the idiom of blood relationship, of kinship, um, partly to suggest, um, in his mind, uh, that we are irrevocably bound to each other, and in being irrevocably bound to each other, we're bound to that history that has given life to us. So, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is? And then it raises a question: What is a healthy posture or comportment toward that past?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's the, of course that's the question
0: that's that you wants- right yeah that's yeah. The, that's the question right and then and that's that's kind of my my final question here for you is, is he talks about this of his mm-hmm. plea that we have to have a different attitude to critically embrace our past this right different comportment how do we structure a collective vision of responsibility together um, obviously we didn't talk about all of the the wonderful uh, thinkers in, in the book and so I I, I, I make sure I hope that people uh, listeners go out and buy your book cause it's, it's really, really great. But um, yeah. How do we, how do we do that? How do we critically embrace our past? How do we have a collective vision of responsibility um, you know, that's on more equal footing and that we're, we're engaging in, in conversation and dialogue with each other uh, you know, honestly and responsibly.
1: Right. You know, I, so When you get to the end, when you get to the end of the book, the chapter, the conclusion, the chapter on Baldwin, um, one of the things that you will notice, I will have said it several times, is that this is not a book that offers a kind of program of action. Right, right. It is a book that spends time thinking about... um, a great number of African-American thinkers and how they understood their struggle against white supremacy and how they were understanding democracy. And at bottom, what they thought um, these sort of um, sort of moral uh, and epistemic virtues ought to be as, you, as we grapple with this. What ought our comportment, our posture, our way of being uh, be as we sort of grapple with this, uh, grapple with this problem? I think in Baldwin, in particular, although all of this is sort of peppered throughout the book, right? It's a thread in the book. And Baldwin, in some sense, um, comes to be um, uh, the full expression of it. But but Baldwin thinks that the first thing we need to do is um, uh, uh, so you know uh, confront our history honestly. It's it's, it's so funny. Because this is such a straightforward and basic point, but it is seen so difficult and hard uh, for the United States to do this, to sort of honestly confront our history. But the difficulty is that to honestly confront that history, you have to disentangle a commitment to progress from a commitment to redemption. Mm. You cannot see... The, the sort of actions that the laws that are passed, the actions that are made in response to racial injustice as redeeming the nation of its sins, of purifying its soul. You gotta let that go. Because the preoccupation with purification makes makes the nation misdescribe those moments in which in which white supremacy persists. Whether whether they're relating to uh you know to uh, um a uh, black folks struggling um, uh, to be treated fairly um, in real estate whether that's whether that's relating to police violence um if you're preoccupied with redemption um then you're gonna always think well this can't be us it must be them so that's the first thing you got sort of pull you gotta you gotta you gotta let go of, of redemption and Baldwin thinks that when you let go of redemption th- that can sort of help bring into clear view the history that we have inherited and that we are responsible for. But here is the trick, because in the United States, when we think of responsibility, we always think about it in terms of liability. I did X to you, therefore I am responsible. But what happens when I am not the actor that has, that has harmed you? Well, then I can't be responsible for it. I mean, this is the sort of liability model of, uh, of responsibility um, that is at work in James Baldwin. And I think in contemporary scholars, you know, uh, in, in political philosophy, um, the late Irish Mary Young is someone that comes that comes to mind. And Baldwin says this is the wrong way to think about resp- responsibility. He says at one point, I didn't do it and I know you didn't do it, but we're responsible for it all the same because this is the community to which we belong. And so what Baldwin tries to offer up is a kind of shared notion of responsibility um, in in which there are obligations uh, owed to our fellows, although we are not causally responsible for their, not necessarily causally responsible for the condition in which they find themselves so now we've disentangled progress from redemption, it's opened us up to be honest to our past, that then introduces shared responsibility, right? And that's hard community work. But of course, when we think about responsibility, sometimes we think the the thing that we're doing, uh, and this brings us back to redemption again, sometimes we think that the thing that we're doing is going to clean us, it's going to purify us. Um, and Baldwin, instead of offering up redemption, I suggest that he offers up atonement um, um atoning work is a way of acknowledging a uh, a trauma that is um a part of us that uh is not going away um but that constantly needs to be managed and held at bay, mm-hmm. and that the way in which we can come to sort of think about our commitment to um, responding to racial inequality, to responding to the persistence of white supremacy, is with um, the skill that we, de- that we deploy and constantly responding to, 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 to our collective trauma. Mm. Uh, that's what it is. Mm. And that's where we begin to measure um, what we're really committed to. That's where we begin to forge ideas of, uh, of, of, of trust um 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 uh between um uh, um, uh various um uh, 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 groups in the united states um uh, between blacks and whites as they sort of grapple with um the persistence of um of, of racial inequality um so that's so that's really where uh, where uh, where the book ends and the question is whether or not we are up to uh, the task of taking on um, this kind of transformed sensibility, and the book does suggest that just as white supremacy is a tradition in American political thought and practice, um, that there are past resources that we could draw on. That mm. um, there actually is a tradition of shared responsibility of trying to mm. disentangle progress from redemption. Um, it, it is there. The book lays it out, mm. um, and we need only turn to these thinkers um, um, uh, to understand, to understand it. Mm.
0: Well, that's, that's very well said. And, and my hope, and I'm sure you have some of this is for people to, to read your book, but also then to engage with these thinkers that you, that you, uh, discuss in, in the book, you know, uh, at the original source material and, and think, uh, for themselves about how, how to engage with this stuff. So I think that's great. The book is called The Darkened Light of Faith, Race, Democracy, and Freedom in African-American Political Thought. Uh, this is out through Princeton University Press. Uh, Melvin, this was fantastic. Uh, where are the best places uh, to get at you, uh, whether it's online or in person or anything else you got coming up? What, uh, what's the best place uh, to get at you?
1: Yeah, I mean, people uh, can reach me uh, at my Brown uh, email, Rogers at brown.edu, Um you can just search for me on Twitter or IG uh, or Threads or Facebook uh, <laughs> using Melvin Rogers. I don't go by any fancy by any fancy name. Um, and if you reach out to me, there are a couple of um, uh, other um, uh, um, opportunities that I have where I'll be talking about these books. Um, and if people are around or people want to listen, I have no problem. Sort of, uh, I'd love to sort of share those links. Yeah,
0: um, yeah, yeah. That's great. Malvin, this was uh, an absolute uh, joy to talk with you about these in such a very honest and uh, balanced ways. I I really uh, value the conversation so much and I'm very appreciative. So so big, big, big thanks for for coming on and talking about it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate you. Of course, of course.